theme will generally tonight be hovering around God's unconditional grace. God's unconditional grace. Romans chapter 5, we're going to pick up at verse 18. Last night we sort of took a little foray into this, and this is another foray. What I'm doing on Sunday mornings, kind of going through Romans, the first few chapters, and by verse 20 of chapter 3, Paul has pretty much demolished that fortress that he intended to demolish, which is the teacher's law gospel or the nomistic gospel, salvation by obedience to the mandates of the Torah. And now we're taking an early foray into Romans chapter 5, into the heart of the unchained gospel. We'll be getting back here again by going, proceeding contextually. But it's important for us to understand that God's grace isn't sufficiently defined by the term unmerited or undeserved. That's not a sufficient definition. But we have to call it unconditional grace. And that defines a free gift, which is used by Paul in two ways, dorea, which is a free gift, and charisma, also a gift of God's grace, to Words. He also uses the word caritas. He, st- he stacks these words up pretty good. But we left off in 518, and this again, I think 518 itself is pretty much the arrow in the heart of the gospel. Therefore, accordingly, just as it was through one man's transgression that condemnation came to all human beings. So, through the one man's righteous, or we could say saving act, came the justification, that I don't think is a good translation, I think it should be the divine deliverance, which is life for all human beings. Now that's my translation from the original Greek text, and I'm going to go with it and stand with it. Again, therefore, accordingly, just as it was through one man's transgression that condemnation came to all human beings, so through the one man's righteous act, a saving act, that's Jesus Christ's act, came the deliverance, which is life, or the justification, which is life for all human beings. I want to clarify an exegetical point on that in a moment. But verse 19 goes on to say, for just as through the disobedience... Parakoe is used here, describing Adam's activity, or Adam's one act. Parakoes. And looks like this. It's made up of the word that means to hear or hearing, and the word alongside, to hear alongside, to be inattentive to or disobedient to. So therefore, it is called the disobedience, an act of disobedience, parakoes, through the disobedience of the one man, that's Adam as an inclusive representative of all humankind. Where did we come to this? Why did we jump over a great array of verses from Romans 3.12? Because in 3.12, we discovered that when God surveyed the sons of men, he saw the entire humanity en masse in its totality, 
He doesn't have to live through the sequence of generations. He sees the whole mass of humanity, and he said they have all together and at the same time. Remember that word, hama, all together and at the same time they have turned away all the sons of men. He's doing a survey of the sons of men in Roman in Psalm fourteen one to three, where Paul cites, and also Psalm fifty three one to three. Yahweh looked down upon the sons of Adam, the sons of mankind. There is none among them that understood. There is none that seeks God. There is none who acts kindly. There is none, none, not even one. They have all together and at the same time turned away. We've discovered that if you take an arrow and shoot it from Romans 3.12 into Romans 5.12, that what we're dealing with is a turning away of all humankind when Adam turned away. How can all of humankind at the same time turn away if human beings live in different contemporaneous settings and different sequence of generations? Only if God considers Adam to be the one man who is an inclusive representative of the entire human race, and therefore when he turned aside from a direct divine command in Eden, all turned aside. The whole of the creation, in fact, turned aside the whole of the cosmos, the whole of humanity turned aside altogether and at the same time. So the cure for that is for the obedience of one man, a single inclusive representative of all humankind, bringing life where the one man brought death. Now Paul actually slams this home in different contexts, like 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty two, where he says, as in Adam... All die, as you know, as in Adam, all are dying. And just so, as in Christ, all will be made alive. And that's right in the heart of a debate in Corinth and one in an argument in Corinth where Paul is defending his gospel. And he's defending it against really false teachers in Corinth who suggested or even taught outrightly there's not going to be a bodily resurrection in the future, a general bodily resurrection. Paul begs to differ. Not only does he go so far as to say that all will be raised to life, but that God is going to be all in all when Jesus Christ is has reigned until all enemies are under his feet. So again, he kind of stacks this up in two different ways of speaking, but he's saying the same thing in verse 19. For just as through the disobedience parakois of the one man, the many were constituted as sinners. We've seen over and over again that the many here, hoi polloi, is the same as pantes all. It's the same as all, the many. It's just like saying ta panta, the all things. It's a comprehensive reality, all of created reality in its proportionate being, ta panta, all things. And it's God's intention, the mystery of his intention is to summarize all things in Christ. That's the great divine intention to which Jesus Christ was obedient. And so we have it here, verse 19, for just as through the disobedience of the one, we could say representative man, the many, that's the, the all of verse 18. There's a correspondence here between the many and the all, as there is between Mark 10.45 and 1 Timothy 2.6. As there is here, it's interchangeable. For just as through the disobedience 
of the one man, the many, were constituted as sinners. Hamartoloi. This is a study in hamartiology or the study of sin. So also by the obedience, now we have hupakoe, hupakoe, which is H U P A K O E S. Hupakoes, which is to hear under and to obey. It's to obey. Jesus Christ obeyed the Father and the Father's intention to save all of humankind. God loved the world so much that he sent his Son. His, the Son loved the world so much that he gave himself. The Father loved the world so much that he gave his Son. He loves his Son so much he gave him the world. We studied that in the Gospel of John. So just as through the disobedience of the one representative man, Adam, the many were constituted as sinners, which is what Romans 3.12 is saying. That's when all of humanity at one time and altogether turned away. But here's when all of humanity, all at the same time and altogether, turned back right here by the obedience of the one, the many were reconstituted as righteous, or we could say as rightly delivered in the sense of being objects of the divine king's rescue mission, as we've studied from Psalm 98 in connection with Romans 117. It's called righteous because it's the right thing to do for a sovereign monarch to save and rescue, preserve and deliver his people and his domain. He did the opposite for his enemies. The judgment of God did come in Christ on the cross. It came against sin, against death, and against death's domain called Hades, a domain. And death and Hades seen riding together on one of the four horses in Revelation 6 are the names of the two cohorts who are thrown into the lake of fire, the second death. So God is just in the sense that he has judged the enslaving suprahuman powers that have enslaved human beings. The gospel we're preaching here is the gospel of a divine invasion into the present age and into the present cosmos through two divine missions to rescue all of humanity unconditionally and with the rescue of all humanity to liberate creation from its enslavement to corruption. It only makes sense that God would act in a way that would redeem completely. It only makes sense. And all the prophets attest to this as we've heard over and over again in Revelation and the apocatastasis pantone the restoration of all things which all the prophets bore witness to, which God spoke through the mouth of all the prophets. One mouth, many prophets, the mouth of God speaking through many. And that should be echoing through the preachers and teachers and evangelists and pastor teachers and theologians of our own time. If it's the message of all the prophets fulfilled in Christ, that message should be echoed through the voices of pastors and teachers, missionaries, evangelists today, parents to children, etc. You say, it isn't. It, you're right, it isn't. And Paul even said in his own time, we are not like the many, meaning the majority of preachers, because we speak the truth in the presence of God in fellowship with Christ. 
Find that in Second Corinthians two fifteen through seventeen. So what I want to particularly note here is something we looked at a little bit last night. We're engaging the text here. This is what I think is supremely important. I'll be reading a lot of theology, and I usually every day read several hours of it exhaustively. I might spend three or four hours on four or five pages, go over it again, over it again. So by the time I'm done with a 400-page commentary, I've probably read it four times. So I do that, but then the Holy Spirit will direct me and say, Get into the text word by word and see what I can show you there. And that's the second phase of my study. Sometimes it's the first and sometimes it's flipped. But what I noted in a looking at the Greek text here is it should be particularly emphasized. I'll say reemphasized because I emphasized it last night that in Romans 518, this phrase unto justification of life is this Greek phrase. It's ace which means unto, it can mean for, there's a lot of different meanings for ace, just like there's 36 meanings for n, there's a lot of meanings for ace, and it depends largely on context. Ace, and then a word that's usually translated as justification, not correctly in Roman's sense, dikaiosin. So we have another genitive noun that follows that. Just like we have pistis Christu, the faith of Christ. Now we have dikaiosune. Let's just say for, for the sake of getting this together here tonight, let's call that justification. But then after justification, after dikaiosin, which is usually translated and probably is in your text, justification, we then have this word that kind of really throws a monkey wrench into, I always hate making the Z, but the Z O, eta, e, s, zoes, zoes, life. So it's unto or resulting in a justification of life. This is a genitive subjective, which means that the, the dikaiosin is a salvation that is life itself. This justification isn't a legal imputation of righteousness, leaving you sinful but under the legal fiction that you're considered righteous by God, which isn't even God being honest. That's the old way of believing. That is what I have found to be a flawed gospel. And there are people in our congregation, there are people in our DVD groups that do not, dis- they do not agree with that. And I don't care. In fact, I'm kind of refreshed by that. That's fine. It's okay. In fact, after I teach this about unconditional grace, it may reaffirm to you as you rhetorically argue with me in your mind, it may reconfirm to you that you want to stay with the old unmerited but not unconditional idea of grace. And therefore, it's not up to me to convince you, which is one of the freedoms that I have as a a preacher and a teacher. As Paul said, if you be otherwise minded, God will convince you of this. In other words, I'm right, and he'll convince you, not me. No, I'm not saying that either. But I'm just trying to say, let us reason together. Let's reflect together. The old conclusion and assumption is that God's grace is unmerited and undeserved only and not unconditional. We've asked the question, is this really so? And we're finding out, I think, that no, it's not really so. Upon reflection, God's grace extends further than just being merely unmerited. And it goes into being unconditional. Therefore, the gospel that we preach is not a voluntarist or a voluntarist, as we would say, a voluntarist gospel, which means 
that people get to choose or refuse salvation in the final analysis in their own will. It's God's will that's involved. It's God's gracious election. And ultimately, the gracious election of God does have two prongs to it. It has a rejection of the man in Adam, and it has an election of the man in Christ. Jesus Christ became, therefore, the object of both sides of that election. He was rejected. He received the rejection that is toward Adamic ontology and put off the flesh in the offering of himself. And he was also elected, as First Peter one twenty says. And so he took care of both sides of the election. So he's the single inclusive representative. By God's choice, mankind is saved. It's just a matter of waking up and smelling the coffee. And when you wake up and smell the coffee, it's when God is pleased to reveal his son to you. From that point, you can look back in a retrospective way and see that once you weren't in Christ and there was nothing you could do, no condition you could meet to get yourself out of the Adamic ontology, out of enslavement to death, enslavement to sin, enslavement to principalities and powers, enslavement to religious systems and human affiliations and peer pressures and fears of mankind and all the rest of it, and now you're not. Now you're free from all of it. It's because it's explainable, explicable only by the fact that now you're in Christ. You are in Christ. So we want to emphasize this. Ace, dikaiosin, zoes. Unto a, if you want to call it justification, it's unto a justification of life or a salvation or an unconditional rescue mission from God that is consisting of life. In other words, your justification or your salvation consists of the gift of Christ's own life from the dead to you and your participation and share in that life. It is a life that specifically has come out of death. I'll explain that. This has to be ironed over many, many times before it's going to be flat and understood. But may God give us, may God grant us understanding. So here we have the accusative use of the noun dikaiosin, often translated justification, but better construed as deliverance. Call it divine deliverance. I think Campbell had it right on that one. And so unto a divine deliverance that is life. Because this is a genitive, we could say a divine deliverance of life, which means a a divine deliverance that is life. It's not the imputation of righteousness. It's the gift of the life of the Messiah himself. That's why Paul could say, the life that I now live, I live by the faithfulness of the Son of God. In fact, he says, it's not even I who lives, but Jesus Christ lives in me. I don't frustrate the grace of God. I don't frustrate this unconditional grace from God. Galatians 2, 20 and 21. So we might even say that translate this as the justification that consists of life. Here's the point. Life from the dead is the gift from God to us through the fidelity of the Messiah, otherwise known as what? The hupakoes, the obedience of the Messiah. Same thing. Means the same thing. Metonymy for the same idea. His faithful death and resurrection his enthronement, all of it, the Christ event. Life from the dead is the gift as the gift from God to us through the fidelity of the Messiah, 
which resulted in his resurrection from the dead. So this takes the word dikaiosin, which is normally a forensic legal word. It takes it out from and away from being merely forensic or legal and describes it rather as the very life that frees us from our enslavement to death, which we presently have, this life that frees us. That's why the same spirit who raised Jesus Christ from the dead is in you and will enliven or vivify your mortal bodies one day when God sees fit at the parousia. There is going to be a general bodily resurrection, eschatologically speaking, contrary to what some teach. The word then, this takes the word dikaiosin or justification away from a merely forensic or legal sense and it describes it as a matter of a gift of life. The justification itself, and I put justification in quotes because it's something that it's hard to break the habit. The justification itself is life. It is dikaiosin zoes, a justification that consists of life, the gift of life. We were under death. Now we have a gift of life that frees us from the enslavement of death and of sin. We have that now. It's only in its inaugural phase as far as our experience, of course. But we await a Savior from heaven who shall change this present body of our humiliation into a body of glory like his own. And this is something he's able to do even as he is going to subordinate all things to himself. Philippians 3.20 and 21. So the justification itself is life. And so I would rather call it an unconditional divine deliverance that consists of the gift of life. We could even say the deliverance that is life. Emphasis on is. And that life is life from the dead. This goes, I'm projecting now a little bit, but that goes all the way up to Romans 6, 7 and Romans 6, 9, and Romans 6, 10, which we're not going to get to tonight. So what's more is that this agrees with Paul's assessment of the saints in Laodicea in the book called Ephesians 2, 5, that while dead in sins, in this letter to Laodicea, according to Colossians 4, 16, the saints in Laodicea, that while dead in sins, They were made alive with Christ. And that means the same thing. They were given the justification or the divine unconditional deliverance that is life. What did they do? They just remained dead and they were made alive in Christ. And then Paul puts a long hyphen for emphasis and says, by grace you were saved. If you were dead and you were made alive, the grace isn't just unmerited. It's not just undeserved. It's unconditional. And that's what he says in 2.5. While dead in sins, they were made alive with Christ, which is followed immediately by, by grace you are saved. You say, but that's in 2.8. Yeah, it is. Again, in 2.8. Even Paul repeats. Grace in Paul's gospel, therefore, is unconditional. In the traditional contractual gospel, and by contractual I mean that there is a stipulation or a condition to be met by each and every rational, self-interested human being who is, according to this other gospel, able to assess his or her own predicament 
and in desperation believe that Jesus is the Christ or believe in Jesus Christ or exercise faith for justification. But in the traditional construal, which is contractual and conditional, grace is unmerited but not unconditional. Now, of course, it is unmerited, but it's also unconditional. That's in my view. That's in my horizon. My horizon sees this now, so I can't say otherwise. To be justified, again, let's use the word just for the sake of using the word, or saved by grace. The reason Paul uses the word dikaiosin in Romans and Galatians is precisely because he is fighting against another gospel that claims that justification or right standing with God comes after a lifetime of adherence to, obedience to the Torah, the demands of the Torah, the moral code of the Torah law, the law of Moses. And then you don't really know whether you're justified or damned and condemned until the final day when the God, the retributive judge, stands and stacks up your works. Some of these false gospel preachers said that your works had to be 100%. Some said 51% is enough. It's a scales thing. So if you're, and many people think this way, if your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, or if you do one really heroic deed, it does away with all of your really bad deeds. And that's, a, that's another kind of a gospel. That's not the good news at all. Nobody knows then till the final day. When, according to any reasonable account of that gospel, the majority of humanity has to perish. And that means that they're courting hell and that they don't go to heaven, but they go to hell forever and ever and ever. That's the other gospel. That's the way the other gospel reads. That's not the teacher's gospel. That's the Reformation Protestant gospel in many ways, because it is, and sometimes the Catholic gospel, it's still a matter of Jesus Christ came, he died for our sins, and the Jewish Christian said, yes, Jesus is the Messiah, and he died for our sins, and he confirmed the promises God made to the fathers, but we still have to get circumcised if we're males and then a comprehensive following of Torah. Now, the Reformation theologians won't tell you that, but they'll say, well, now the law has a third use. Even though Jesus Christ fulfilled the law and the law isn't for righteousness, but personal faith is for righteousness, after you're saved, you can obey the law now. That's not the gospel either. But we're going to hit, there's a lot of different, this is like taking a karate test with multiple opponents. You've got to take this guy out. You've got to take this guy out. You've got to throw a high kick to this guy and break his jaw and another a, a knife-edge throat to the throat and not take somebody else out. They're trying to find out where their voice box went. Another kick to the groin on another guy, and then you've got to turn around and elbow another person in the nose. That's what I'm doing right now. That's the arena. So please be patient for another five or six months. So grace in Paul's gospel is unconditional. So therefore, to be justified, again, that's a word. He doesn't use that word in Ephesians. He doesn't use that word in Colossians, where he gives a pristine account of the gospel. He simply says, you were dead, and God made you alive. He doesn't use justification language. He only uses justification language because he is, in Philippians 1.7, we might get into this a little Sunday morning, Paul said, I am appointed for the defense and the confirmation of the gospel. In the first part of Romans, he defends his gospel against a false gospel. And then in Romans 5 through 8, he confirms his gospel. 
And therefore, he uses this dikaio, dikaio language only in Galatians and Ephesians and very few other times. In 1 Corinthians, he uses it, but he also says, now you are washed, now you are justified, now you are sanctified in the name of Jesus Christ. In other words, he stacks up a whole bunch of words. But the bottom line is we were dead and we were made alive. It's a liberating, life-giving transformation. It puts us into participation with Christ. That's our salvation. It puts us into an eschatological hope that is confident and unqualified and not uncertain and not creating eschatological anxiety, which a Christian could become a psychiatrist and make millions of dollars simply counseling Christians who have eschatological anxiety who don't know if they're going to heaven or hell. They don't know if they've done enough, but the, under the justification by faith, they don't know if they believed enough. They don't know if their belief was sincere. The preacher will say, well, this person lost their salvation because they never really had it because they never really believed, that kind of thing. That's, that kind of stuff is way, it's fake good news. There's no good news about it. It's fake good news. It's not the gospel. Paul really reamed that in Galatians. He said, this other gospel, he says, it shouldn't even be called gospel because guess what gospel means? Good news. There's no good news in that. I'm not recommending you become a Christian psychiatrist, but the, it might be a good way to reach a lot of people because the, the gospel I'm preaching seems to bypass people's ears. They're more interested in what the president says and gets himself in trouble saying or something of that kind than the gospel. This gospel is not being heard right now, except by, thankfully, and I'm very grateful for you, a small minority. It's being rejected. It's being maligned. It's being slandered. It's being misunderstood. It's being rejected with violent, passionate reaction because of many of the same accusations that were fired at Paul. This also squares perfectly this life from the dead. So let's use the word justification because Paul had to use it in his battle against the teacher in Rome and the teachers, plural, in Galatia, who claimed to have the backing of the Jerusalem leadership. They claimed even these false brothers also came in, and they claimed to have the backing of Peter, James, and John. James first, then Peter, then John. John Zebedee, not the beloved disciple. He wasn't an apostle in Jerusalem. Beloved disciples is a different guy altogether. We've proven that in 300 messages called the fourth G. So if you've got a different opinion there, then bring it. I'll sit down and listen to you for 301 hours. Not. This also squares this idea of being saved by grace or given life also squares with 1 Corinthians 15, 22, where we find the declaration for just as in Adam all die, or are dying, present active indicative third person plural of apothnesco, so also in the Messiah all will be made alive. So this justification of life in Romans 5.18 is a key phrase because it equates this justification with the gift of life given to the dead. And so it's an unconditional gift. And what can a dead man do? What can a dead man do to improve his condition? You can say, get up to a dead man, and I promise he won't get up. But if Jesus Christ says it, I promise he will. And they will, and we all will. That's the gift of God's grace. 
So the justification of life, as we translate it in Romans 5.18, so also in the Messiah, all will be made alive. That is a gift to every human being. It's the gift of Christ's own life. In John 14.19, he says, because I live, meaning I will live out from the dead, you will live also. That's it. Because I live, you will live also. It's God's choice. It's God's gift. It's unconditional. So the justification of life in Romans 5.18, which is to every human being, is the gift of Christ's own life to all of humankind, which occasioned Paul to say, in perhaps his most dramatic, all-encompassing, personal statement, I was crucified with Christ. He had nothing to do. He didn't decide he was going to be crucified with Christ. When Christ was crucified, so was Paul. That's where it was. That's where it happened. Nevertheless, I live. I, Paul, am alive. I have a very strong self-image, he could say. I do too. I have a strong ego. I know who I am, but I know that I am nothing without him. And so I have an ego that's tempered by truth, grace, which demands and requires humility because we are what we are only by the grace of God. It is no longer I who live, he said, but Christ who lives in me. And then he says, he backs that with saying, I don't frustrate the grace of God. And this is total accord with the meaning of dikaiosune in Romans 1.17. Because Paul gets the meaning of dikaiosune or righteousness, the righteousness of God, which is being apocalyptically revealed by his gospel. The meaning of that, again, and I've said this many times before, derives from an allusion to Psalm 98 in which the righteousness of God is specifically specified with specificity. Isn't that great? Specifically specified with specificity to be God's righteous saving act in Christ that which is continually being apocalyptically revealed by Paul's gospel throughout Paul's epistles so that we might even begin to see the small beginnings of an answer to our question, are Paul's epistles as a corpus, an apocalypse of Jesus Christ in his all-saving significance? Is Paul, in all of his epistles, summed up? Is his gospel an apocalyptic revelation of Jesus Christ as an all-saving Savior. We have to say yes if we think Second Timothy was written and First Timothy was written and Titus was written to summarize Paul's doctrine because in Titus 2.11 it says, the grace of God has appeared, colon, salvation for all humankind. And in First Timothy 2.4, it's God's will that all people, all humankind, should be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth and that Jesus Christ is our only mediator between God and mankind and he gave himself as a ransom for all. 1 Timothy 2, 4 through 6, Titus 2, 11. Faithful is this word. Since we died with him, and we did, we shall also live with him. Who's we? If not all, all of us. Just as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. 
So in Romans 1.17, this righteousness of God that's being revealed through the good news of God about his son, that righteousness is specifically God's righteous saving act in Christ, that which is being continually apocalyptically revealed by Paul's gospel, the good news of God about his son, who was dramatically declared to be God's eternally begotten son by his resurrection from the dead, by being the firstborn of the dead, by being the first and the inclusive representative of all who will be made alive from the dead in him. All of us are going to be made alive from the dead. The kind of life we have is a life that's conquered death. We have that life now. And that's why the moment we pass from this body, we pass into the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ, fully into his presence, so that he's immediate to us and immediately present to us. So we're seeing again, in fact, Jesus Christ is the first victim of death, we could say, that death could not hold and that death had to cough up. Death could not hold him. The grave could not hold him. And so when he overcame death, he overcame death for all of the victims of death. Death, where we stand right now, has been defeated. But death has yet to cough up its victims. Death has yet to cough up its victims when out from its domain of the dead, called Hades, not hell, but the domain of death is cast into the lake of fire. The domain of death and death itself die. God's judgment is directed toward suprahuman enslaving powers, not toward anyone in the enslaved human race. All he has for them is liberation. And some of the worst evildoers in the human race do the evil only to demonstrate just how enslaved they are to sin and to evil, and to death. And so the redemption of the worst offenders, like Saul of Tarsus, demonstrates the grace of God to a dramatic degree. That's why I started to think about better call Paul. Who first thought of that? God, in the triune, pre-temporal, sovereign, executive, roundtable meeting, we better call Paul because if we're going to demonstrate our unconditional grace we better take a guy in the height of evil in the height of breathing out murders of Jesus Christ and his people who intends to annihilate the new creation as it's in the church we better confront him and save him without condition so that he can be the primary preacher of a gospel of unconditional grace. Better call Paul. I decided it was time to call Paul. Because I've heard what Luther said, and I've read what Calvin said, and I know what the modern theologians have said, and I'm pretty much sure of what Karl Barth's view is, which is pretty clear on the gospel. And I'm pretty sure I know Moltmann, and I'm pretty sure way back I studied Lewis Spray Schaefer and all of the dispensationalists and Schofield and all the rest of them. And I've been, through every, I've been to a whole bunch of schools of these guys. But I decided it's better to just call Paul. 
What did Paul mean? And there's books that say, what did Paul mean? And then there's another book put out that says, what did Paul really mean? And then somebody else could say, what did Paul really, really mean? And I said, let's call Paul. Let's get it from him. Which is really getting it from God, getting the scoop from God. Paul's epistles taken together. This is the beginning of the materialization of the answer to the question that occasioned this series for me. Paul's epistles taken together as a corpus or as a body of epistles, we'll, we'll say at first the 10 collective epistles or the 10 communal epistles, excluding First and Second Timothy and Titus for now, although we can refer to them on another level, that this corpus are the presentation together, taken together, just like the book of Revelation was a revelation of Jesus Christ given to him by God the Father to give to John, the slave of Jesus Christ, through a messenger angel and then to give to the churches to be enlightened by the spirit, which Jesus said, listen to what the spirit is saying to the churches, a revelation. And just like that in one way and unlike it in another, Paul's corpus taken together, we're beginning to see is indeed looking like the apocalyptic revelation of Jesus Christ as an all-saving Savior, as an enthroned Lamb who has taken away the sin of the world, whose light is the lamp of the universe. But we're by no means done, and this is what I'll say pastorally. I'm not in the academy of theologians. You can, you can in the academy of theologians, you can afford to be impersonal. As a pastor, you can't. You can't be impersonal. You can't make your ministry all about people because it's all about Christ, but it's directed toward people. It's quite personal. So here's pastorally what I'm saying. We are no means done saying this or demonstrating this, and you may decide not to agree with the unconditionality of this gospel. Some have not. Some have walked away. That's their own prerogative. That's all right. And I'm not kidding. I mean it. It's all right. That's all right. I'm only encouraging further reflection, though. I'm only encouraging further reflection. That's all. Asking you to think and reflect on the former judgment that salvation is by meeting a criterion or a stipulation of faith alone to be saved which to me, to me, is a former assumption, which I now consider to be fatally flawed. It isn't the gospel of the teacher of a salvation by works, but it's a mixed bag of the teacher mixed up with Paul in Romans, not seeing Romans as a dialectic of contradictory gospels in which you have to choose the one over the other, but they see it as a mixture. And so it mixes up both gospels and it thanks God for the relief of lowering the bar down from obeying the law to just believing or faith alone, which is still a condition. So this is the sticking point of this whole thing. In Revelation, it was universal as the sticking point. In Romans and in Paul, it's unconditional. That's the sticking point. So I personally have seen that the conditional, contractual idea of the gospel 
And I've had a lot of help from Douglas Campbell on this and a lot of help from others like J. Lewis Martin and his fantastic Galatians commentary published by Yale University. I'm learning from that immensely also. That the old notion of a gospel involving a stipulation of faith alone to be saved is a fatally flawed assumption. But here's, again, this is pastorally to you. And I say this to the DVD groups and to everyone else who listens to these messages, whether an individual or group. And that is this. You may end up with a strengthened conviction that this construal of the gospel, which is conditional, is the correct one. You may strengthen that assumption. But you also may be convinced, not by me, but by God, the persuader, in Philippians 3.15, that the grace of God is unconditional and not merely unmerited or undeserved. God's grace is certainly unmerited and certainly undeserved. But undeserved and unmerited is an inadequate definition. Because God's grace, soteriologically speaking, salvifically speaking, is unconditional. This is on my horizon. This is what I see. You don't have to see that. That's the point. You don't have to see it that way. And I'm convinced that if you need to be convinced otherwise, God will convince you. And I'm also convinced that if I need to be convinced otherwise, God will convince me. What an agreement. What a nice unity. But here's the next thing, and I'm going to close with this. Romans 5.20. I'm going to jump here. The point remains the same, that the human race will be made alive in Christ, who was made alive from the dead on the third day from his death. As Romans 4.25, we're going to find very soon, he was handed up or delivered up for our transgressions and raised up or resurrected for our justification. So we are justified or delivered unconditionally by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ or his faithful death that led to resurrection. The justifying means, if there's any means at all, isn't my faith alone. It's Christ's faithfulness. A lot of people are going to, you know what it means to be saved for a lot of people? It's going to be they'll hear a message like this and they'll realize, hey, I'm in Christ. I was crucified with Christ. I was buried with Christ. I was raised with Christ. It's God revealing his son to you. Not everybody is born at the same time. Not everybody is born again at the same time. Thank God you're elected for such a time as this to be part of the people that know they're in Christ. You're greatly, highly privileged. But don't get survivor's remorse. Don't say, why me and not somebody else? I'll take it knowing that everybody else will be in. I'll take it. If we're going to pioneer it a little bit and then identify with Jesus Christ and the opposition that you get by pioneering this truth and explaining this truth and proclaiming this truth, fine. It's a privilege. The mechanics of this whole thing become visible in Romans 6, how we enter into life from the dead. Now look at Romans 5.20. And the law slipped in through a side door, he says. The law slipped in through a side door. That's exactly what it par- 
It's the word for par erkomai. It slipped in through a side door. You know what Paul's doing here? Sidelining the law. Where the teacher of the law, the gospel preacher that says we're justified by circumcision and then by the works of the law, even though Jesus Christ took care of our sins and even though he confirmed the promises to the patriarchs, we still have to be circumcised to the works of the law in order to be saved. So he sidelines Jesus Christ and his crucifixion and death and burial and resurrection and he places in a salient position the law. Paul does the opposite here in this contradiction. He contradicts that and says, the law slipped in through a side door. Paul sidelines the law, not Jesus Christ. And so the law slipped in through a side door to make sin disappear. Are you looking at your, what's it say? It doesn't say disappear. It says increase, abound. The law slipped into a side door so that sin in the human race, historically speaking, would be all the more increased. So if you're going to tell me that I'm justified by the works of the law, then, and I see here that the law only increases sin, something's wrong with your gospel to the teacher. But where sin abounded, grace super abounded, abounded much more. So that just as sin, capital S, as a superhuman power, reigned, ruled together with death as a superhuman power. So now grace reigns by deliverance into life or by righteousness or by deliverance into the life that abides through the ages through Jesus Christ, our Lord. It's right here that the objection is lodged, and that takes us into pneumatological ethics, the ethics of the Holy Spirit, ethics realized in the Holy Spirit, called a walk in the Spirit. This is where ethics comes, because it's precisely right here, the conclusion that salvation comes through the sheer, unconditional grace of God that led to the charge that Paul is saying by saying this, so let's go out and do evil that good may come. Or, as he puts it in Romans 6.1, shall we then go continue on in sin? Because historically, the more sins were committed, the more God's grace abounded. So that historical reality, does that mean that my personal history has to mean that I should sin more and more now with this knowledge so that grace will abound in my own life. That, dis, that kind of a conclusion is what we would call a non sequitur. It doesn't follow. It's a non sequitur. Because Paul will say, shall we go out continue in sin, that grace may abound more in our lives? And he says, of course not. That kind of non sequitur is five things. It's inattentive, it's unintelligent, it's unreasonable, it's irresponsible, and it's very unloving. It's not the truth. The actual historical fact that God's grace superabounded when man's sinfulness abounded meets with the fact that we have been incorporated into the history of Jesus Christ, not the history of people in Adam. We have been incorporated into the history of Jesus Christ who died to sin 
in Romans 6, 9, and is alive from the dead to live unto God. So consider yourselves to be dead to sin. And if you're dead to sin, how can you continue any longer therein? Consider yourselves to be dead to sin. Why? Because your history isn't the history of mankind who by the law sin increased. Your history is the shared history with Jesus Christ who died to sin and was made alive to God. So consider yourselves to be dead to sin as a sharer in Christ's history and alive to God. That rationale doesn't square with the license to sin. It's quite the antithesis. And so what we're doing is making a move from Christological salvation or Christological soteriology to a pneumatological ethic. The teacher's gospel not only sidelined Christ and the cross and made salient the law, but he also sidelined the spirit and emphasized the letter of the law as a post-regeneration ethic. The question is often asked, after salvation, what? After salvation, there's nothing. Your salvation is forever. You're never in a post-salvation moment. You're always in salvation because you're in the Savior. You're in Christ. It's better to say a post-regeneration life because regeneration or the birth, the new birth happens in a moment whereby you are shifted into Christ and you know it and God reveals his son to you and to be in Christ is to be a new creation. Therefore, to deviate from the gospel of the unconditional grace of God is to turn away from the one who gave you existence as a new creation. That's what the Galatian churches did. So I'll say it again and close. The actual historical fact that God's grace superabounded when man's sinfulness increased because the law came in through the side door and triggered that abundance of sin The fact that that happened in the history of people in Adam does not mean that now that I have received this deliverance from God unconditionally, that I should now continue in sin so that grace will abound because my history does not match the history of humanity in Adam. My history is a shared history with the second man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, that's why Paul says this in Romans 6.1. What are we to say then? See, I'm pushing, we're doing a foray. It's pushing through. It's plowing through to the next phase. What are we to say then, Paul says? What's an appropriate slogan for us? Is it this one? Let's persist in sin. Under the power of sin, that is, hamartia. In order that grace would increase. Should that be our slogan, he's saying? And then he says, absolutely not. Meganoito. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Hmm. That's a question that I'll leave hanging in your stream of consciousness. Last night and tonight, many of the midweek services is just a plugging on, a slogging through. It's what Peter, what Paul said to Timothy that your progress may be known to all. That progress is pro-copto. It's the picture of a man with a machete, a pathfinder, going through very thick brush, but cutting it down to make a path. That's what the preacher does. And that's what I'm doing. So I'm not expecting you to see the big clearing already, but I think you're you're on the path 
of the just, which shines brighter and brighter until you get to a perfect day, a perfect dawning. Proverbs 418. Father, thank you for this opportunity. And we didn't open in prayer, but we'll sure close in prayer and ask you to rivet the truths of the unconditional grace of God and the gospel of God about his son, Jesus Christ, so that we will understand that it is all about our Lord Jesus Christ. And so that in our own personal lives, he is not sidelined, nor is the spirit sidelined as we try to live in a humanly conceived ethical and moral self-righteous ethics but help us rather to understand what it means to walk to take a walk in the spirit and not fulfill the cravings of the flesh we thank you for this in christ's name and we 